become something, something different, something different, something different. This way comes something, something different, something different. Hi, I'm Heather McLeod. Welcome to the Greening City edition of Something Different. This way comes. Today's conversation is with Summer Stevenson. Summer is the sustainability coordinator of the city of Thunder Bay. I want to better understand what Thunder Bay, as a municipal government, has committed to doing when it comes to climate action and what it's accomplished so far. Over recent years, I have noticed things that have given me hope around town, like solar panels on municipal buildings and a feasibility study that, that was recently announced to make all city buses zero-emission electric which would be so great. I was glad when the city announced there is a climate emergency in 2020. And I see on their website, Thunder Bay has a, a net zero strategy and a climate adaptation strategy and, a, and an earth care Thunder Bay. But what does that mean? That we are doing differently, that, we, that we, we've committed to. So Summer and I talked about that and about how Thunder Bay compares to other cities. But we also got a little emotional about how hard it can be to look at climate change right in the eye every day. It's a crisis, an urgent one, without a single snap-your-finger solution. It's hard. And Summer shared her strategies for keeping productive while keeping it real. So, let me introduce you to Summer Stevenson. She's been the Acting Sustainability Coordinator for Thunder Bay since 2020. Summer is a Lakehead University grad, adding a Bachelor's of Education here to her first university degree, which was a Bachelor of Science in Biology and Anthropology at Trent University. She's a former Science North staff member and an Ontario Parks naturalist. And she's a transplant citizen, having chosen Thunder Bay as her home, like me. Summer, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really, I'm really excited about this conversation. I want to start off welcoming you because like me, you chose to move to Thunder Bay. Why? What brought you here? Why did you choose this place to make home? Um, so I, I graduated uh, from university in 2016 and I was having a really hard time finding a job. I was, you know, I was applying everywhere I could. I heard all these horror stories about, you know, my friend's siblings struggling to find work. And so I, I cast my net out very wide and I uh, ended up landing a job at Science North in Sudbury. I love Science North. Total fan. Yeah, a wonderful and amazing organization. And so I, you know, I was really excited. I said, okay, I'm ready to make the move north. At the time, Sudbury would have been six hours north of, of where I grew up in my home and the furthest north I'd ever been. Oh, wow. And I got there and I, I started working and I, I loved my job and my position, but Sudbury just didn't really feel like a good fit for me. Something about, you know, your your location point when you would come in and out of the city being a giant smokestack. I just it never, it, you know, I never felt the connection to home. Um, so I I got a call from the Thunder Bay office and, and they said, you know, Summer, we'll be able to keep your contract on longer if you move to Thunder Bay. 
we need somebody up here. Uh, you know, you don't speak French, so your opportunities in, in Sudbury are, are fairly limited. Um, we know you want to work. And I said, okay, why not? <laughs> so did you have any idea how much farther it was from there to here? How much farther north you'd be driving the first time? Um, so I knew it was far um, as part of my, my job at Science North was to travel across the Northeast um, to, you know, talk to school children and, and visit communities and, and just share my love of science. And so I had been uh, to the Sault Ste. Marie and then to Wawa. And so I was like, okay, I, I have a bit of an understanding on how far this is going to be. But that drive from Wawa to Thunder Bay is, is even longer. <laughs> Yep. So, but you came and you stayed. I came and I stayed as soon, you know, I loaded all of my things into a small rental car. And as soon as I hit Nipigon and I drove from Nipigon to Thunder Bay and I looked over all of the hills and saw the beautiful Canadian shield and the cusp of the boreal forest and the beautiful views of the lake, I, I cried. Um, you know, I've, Oh my gosh. I've always had a very, um, you know, spiritual connection with nature and natural spaces. And as soon as I came over one of the last humps um, and, and saw the lake and, and the sleeping giant, I, I was crying in the car and I was like, this is it. Okay, here I am. And it just felt like coming home. Oh, wow. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. I, I feel, I feel for me, it was, I grew up close to the Rockies. And then we moved east and I always miss them. I just literally miss them. Um, I'm getting cry too. But when I moved here and I saw that sky um, and I saw it with the, the rocks, it, it kind of was the same. It was the perfect mix between my teenage years, my, my young adulthood on the shield and near the Laurentians uh, into that prairie sky of my childhood. Like we have everything. We have, we have the open and we have the, the, solid and it's just a, a very powerful place I, i'm so excited to be here and to get to build for here so all right so let's talk about your job i think you are at this nexus of all kinds of changes that uh that people might hear rumors of but not have very clear idea of, of what they're doing what they're trying to do how they work and i don't expect you to explain it all like at all so this is like a cole's notes get me oriented kind of conversation with summer so as a sustainability coordinator for the city like what is sustainability that the city is trying to improve on what are we aiming for um yeah so it's it is a really tricky question there's a lot to unpack because this position was created in the early 2000s and back in the early 2000s sustainability was really about having less of an impact on the planet. And we thought about this in ways uh, like reducing our waste, not using plastic water bottles, um, planting trees and plants and eating local. So all of these really local actions that we can take to live more sustainable lives and live within you know, our, our ecological boundaries. And so that's how sustainability was really thought about. And when this position started, it was about educating the community and saying, you know, there's good ways to live with the planet and then there's you know less less good ways but over time um as you know things have changed in the sustainability world dramatically and and we started to realize that climate change had and has 
a, a significant impact on the way we think about and talk about and operate as we you know live sustainable lives it became uh, one of the focal points and so this position began transitioning into okay you know it's it's how do we talk about sustainability with the community but how do we make the city and municipal operations more sustainable and how do we integrate some of these principles about living you know within our within our means and reducing our impact on the planet and how do we integrate this in a way where we can help support other people to do that and so that's the wonderful thing about working for a municipality and i think you know we we don't see municipalities or we don't see the city we live in the same way we think about provincial or federal politics but the the infrastructure which is what the city deals in so our roads our bridges our buildings um all of these different elements are are fairly significant in how we live our lives how the city works is how you know, it determines how we work in it. And and those connections, um, I don't think, are very clear. And so that's what this role has really morphed into is how do we make that connection clear? How do we help make the way the city operates more sustainable so that we can help the people who live here be more sustainable? Because it is a relationship between the two. It's not, you know, we're not just individuals who, who exist in in these little bubbles, uh, we all live in in these systems, and so, um, you know, I feel like I've I've really went off on a tangent here, but that, <laughs> but that's how that's how I really think about my job is you know when we think about the the sustainability piece, okay, we understand what sustainability means, but that coordinator piece is putting all of these different pieces together and building that puzzle and trying to change the way that we we think mm. and we do regular things um yeah because that is no no you're totally making sense to me so things like uh what emits carbon would be burning fossil fuels so building a city where people need to drive less uh building a city where people use less energy to heat their homes or cool their homes those would all be ways that uh everybody would love to see a change but it's a municipal level change really there might be financing or ways to finance it otherwise but it's where are we living and 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 how do we live in that space and also how many trees are out there and how healthy are they and how ready are they for a changing and a and a less predictable climate and i want to talk about that too like when we're trying to make change, it's helpful to be able to track the impact of that change, which is a whole other challenge, right? Like we're, we're trying to change, you said, our systems and our understanding, but also how are we tracking things? Do we have any tracking going on? This is my husband's question. He's a, he's a weatherholic, like he's a three apps on his phone minimum to see what's coming our way and talk about what's around us weather-wise. So uh, I got to tell you, with climate change, Extreme weather actions, they just, they're, they're more frequent. Does the city track weather in any way? So uh, through our climate adaptation strategy, so that's the strategy um, that looks at, you know, how is the city going to manage the impacts from climate change? We know that uh, there's a certain level of warming that's locked in and we need to be prepared for the wild weather that comes with that. So through the climate adaptation strategy, uh, we track annually um, extreme weather events, um, and we track how that impacts infrastructure. So whether Synergy North, our local electricity utility, had any outages and how long those outages were for. 
So those indicators are included each year in a report to City Council, and that goes every November. So we rely on data from Environment Canada to track some of that weather and the excellent work um, that's done, you know, at our at our local weather monitoring stations. And that's the one side of the tracking. Yeah. Because one of the things I think about is, is when you talk about a crisis, people are looking for the fire, an assumption that there'll be a lot of screaming and yelling and people not able to do things. But in fact, people are incredibly resilient. So crazy stuff happens and we get through it instead of all shutting down. I'm thinking just of the last few weeks and it's been a lot of extreme weather and it has impacted people's lives, but they've mostly just gotten on with getting on. Like it hasn't been feeling like a crisis. So the tracking is helpful to give you a sense that, you know, we are we are frogs in the heating pot. Um, no one's going to try to stomp on us all of a sudden. We have to hop out of the way. This is a terrible metaphor. But but you got to get what I'm saying. You, you kind of need somebody to, to draw the line and add the graph up to say, oh, yeah, no, this is happening here, too. We're just dealing with it as it comes. Yeah. And the the better we are at adapting to extreme weather and the better designed our systems are the less we will notice the impacts which is a bit of a catch-22 because right you know for a really long time we were hoping that once people started to see more extreme weather like the you know extreme heat that hit british columbia last year and burned an entire town to the ground boiled clams in their shells in the ocean we think that events like that are going to to trigger a response but what we what we're finding is that it it doesn't because you know as as we've seen with the pandemic we have this ability to to pick up and keep going because that's what we have to do and so you know on the one hand um those those impacts we always hope that it will inspire action but at the same time we need to make sure that we don't experience the impacts as much as we possibly can. Right. Yeah, it's a track. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm getting you off the... I did want you to introduce me to some of the things. When I go on the city's website and I ask, what are we doing about sustainability and climate? I find Earth Care's page and there's all these reports and, and leads to different websites. And I would love to know more about them or at least give a Coles Notes, like I said, to what they are. So uh, let's start with Earth Care. What's your quick uh, introduction to what it is exactly? And, and what are some of the changes that it's uh, had a hand in that people might recognize? So EarthCare is a partnership between the city and the community to work on issues of community sustainability. So this is the network in which uh, we, we organize um, resources and plan different projects uh, that can be implemented, you know, so that the responsibility isn't all on the city to to make these changes, but it's a, it's really a community wide effort. So if we think about things like um, like the rainwater garden initiative, I'm seeing in front of a lot of businesses. Would that be an example? Yeah. So the rainwater garden initiative, and so the uh, the city. What happens is the city provides Eco Superior with funding um, to to distribute and educate the public on things like rain gardens or drainage rebate programming, and then uh, EarthCare as as a community kind of organization uh, helps with advertising that or hosting rain garden tours in support of Eco Superior along with Eco Superior, and what EarthCare, what's really what's really special about it is it, it 
provides a avenue so that all of these different partners that work on these types of projects uh, are able to connect and and chat about it so it's not just you know the city provides eco superior with the money and eco superior delivers the program and that's the end of it we come together in a space and we have representatives from the city representatives from eco superior and then other interested parties you know maybe they're homeowners who are looking to share this with their friends and family or maybe they are business owners that are looking to create a rain garden for their business but they all come together to to talk about it and generate those ideas so the the earth care platform yeah is is just it's really about um providing a space for people to talk about this and to mobilize people um to continue action and, and just for me to clarify a rain garden is really a making beautiful a way to get rainwater so that it stays where we need it and doesn't all run away too fast. So I'm seeing them pop up every year, more of them. And uh, so it's, I think it's been a successful initiative. It's pretty, and people talking about them with knowledge that would have just looked at you blankly maybe five years ago before that initiative. So just as an example. So how about the Thunder Bay net zero strategy? In brief, how would you summarize, if you can, uh, how that shows up in things? Like what is the commitment made and, and how might it come into play? Um, yeah, so in brief is going to be hard because this is <laughs> is really my, you know, my metaphorical baby is the net zero strategy. Um, and so this strategy is is recognizing that, you know, while the Earth Care Sustainability Plan is fantastic and, and targets so many different areas of sustainability, when we think about all of the structures that support our life on Earth, it all comes back to climate change. And we have a huge crisis to confront and we have only so many years to do it and the net zero strategy recognizes this and responds directly to the climate emergency by outlining a technologically feasible pathway to achieve the scientific imperative so not an aspirational target but the scientific imperative of net zero by 2050. And so this strategy um, was approved in June 2021. So we're still working on integrating it into corporate operations. And that will be, you know, a five-year process. But this is about um, rethinking how the municipality operates and responding to the climate crisis in a way that ensures that all future decision-making aligns with this pathway. And the biggest thing and the biggest impact is going to be a climate lens that comes out of this. So this is a an action item that's on my ever expanding to do list. But you know, providing an opportunity where every single issue that comes forward to council is looked at through the lens of climate change, and that's what the net zero strategy allows us to do. Because really, we're doing some math here. We're like, in order to build the things and do the things in the meantime, we need to do. Uh, we're emitting carbon all the time, right? So how do we emit less? And at the same time, build the things that capture carbon, which is old growth forest, new trees, undisturbed peat bogs, all those lungs of the planet that will eat what we are using too much of. But they're kind of a capacity. So build their capacity, limit our emissions, get to a balance of there's as much plus as there is negative and we've gotten to zero. Um, we're not anywhere close to it right now. So it's a journey. It's like this very steep hill to uh, go from high emission to low emission while building capacity to absorb emissions at the same time. So you can imagine when you're when you're figuring out the landscape of our lives, the city we live in and the and the surrounding area that we rely on, 
how many little things could add up to big differences and how many big things could impact many things in small ways. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and I think when, when we're talking about something as big as net zero and we're talking about something as big as reducing, you know, in Thunder Bay's case, um, a million tons of, of carbon dioxide, that, that's going to take every single sector. That's going to take changes in transportation, changes in land use planning, changes in how we manage our waste, our water, our buildings. It's everywhere. And without a clear pathway, we're just hoping for the best. Right. And so at least with the net zero strategy, even if we don't follow the pathway exactly, we know that if we have to reduce a certain amount of emissions in one category and we decide to not do that, where's that reduction going to come from? We have to think about that. Right. It's like a budget. You've suddenly got an actual spelling out. You know, if I'm going to spend this much more on groceries than usual, what am I going to do less of in order to be okay at the end of the month? Yeah, interesting. All right, now there's a different one. How about the climate adaptation strategy? How is that different? So since the industrial era, we have been emitting carbon at ever-increasing scale. We did see the very brief, very, very brief dip in 2020 with the halting of industry during the early days of the pandemic. But we know that hasn't been sustained. So every year we have been releasing more and more carbon into our planet and overloading all of our systems. So we have already guaranteed a certain level of warming. It's already locked in. We're at about you know 1.3 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times. And we know that we're going to hit 1.5 within the next five years. We know that. Because it's not like... A carbon emitted is a degree erased. The carbon has its own lifetime of affecting the climate. So once it's born, it can't be unborn. You got to live with it as long as it's there. Yep. And so, you know, we know that even if we reduced all of the global emissions right now, today went right to zero, we are still locked in for, you know, 1.5 to 1.6 degrees warming. We'll hit a peak and it would drop again. So those extreme uh, events like the heat of BC we talked about earlier, that's not the peak. That's just where we're at today. we got to get ready for more. Crazy. Yeah. And, and the biggest thing is because we know that with more carbon dioxide in the air, it allows more water to be absorbed in the atmosphere. And that's the biggest thing is that water piece, because the more water we have and the higher the temperatures are, that's where the crazy weather comes in and the extremes and the changes to, you know, our natural systems that we've relied upon for thousands of years. So the climate adaptation strategy recognizes that the planning we've done needs to account for these changes. So when we talk about engineering and we talk about infrastructure, uh, we can use the example of a bridge. So in some cases, a bridge has to be designed for a one in every 50 year storm or a one in every 100 year storm. So this is a storm that we assume will happen. You know, it's on average, it'll happen once every 100 years and you need to be prepared for it. Yeah. If, if, the, if the bridge is going to last for 50 years and the storm is going to happen once every 100 years, this bridge has to survive yeah. one of them only. And now the issue with climate change 
is that our one in a hundred year storms are becoming one in every 10 years, or, you know, we're seeing them happen at such a much more dramatic rate. We're hearing a lot of three in the month of March, three in the month of March. We're hearing a lot of one once in a thousand year heat wave. But the thing is, is it's no longer once in every a thousand years. And so our infrastructure has to be prepared for those higher extremes. And that is, you know, that's a hard conversation to have because we have to budget for that and it's more expensive. And we can't predict it based on experience. We have to predict it based on science. This is what's likely, but I can't tell you for sure because it hasn't happened yet. Exactly. And, you know, it's all good planning means that you will never notice it. You'll never notice if it does its job because we know when something is not working properly. <laughs> yeah. You notice when the wheel squeaks, you don't notice when it rolls silently by. Yeah. So, and that's the hardest part is, you know, we're, we're asking to make these investments in a future that isn't guaranteed, isn't confirmed. And that can be really, really challenging. But we're really lucky here in Thunder Bay that our council has been very proactive on a lot of these climate adaptation initiatives. We were lucky to receive um, funding from the Disaster Mitigation and Adaptation Fund to the tune of $14 million for a $33 million stormwater mitigation project that's ongoing right now and it will take place over the next eight years so we're, we're doing a lot of really awesome stuff because we know here in thunder bay our our memories you know i wasn't here in 2012 but i know a lot of people really really remember the floods of 2012 and what happened during that stormwater event and so that really was a catalyst for for climate action in the sense that it's a lot easier to build these systems to handle these capacities than it is to retroactively try to solve the problem of hundreds of basements flooding. Yeah, that's good to know that we're ahead. Like how else do we compare? What else have we done that we're lucky to have gotten done and, and that's a step in the right direction? So for, for climate adaptation, it's, um, it's much easier because we're able to conduct vulnerability assessment. Oh. So we're able to take a look at the city, uh, map it out, and then look at climate projections and climate models and say, okay, here are our risk areas. You know, here's our engineering list of the things that we need to do in this area. So we're able to do that. And our vulnerability assessments help us kind of benchmark against other cities. And we're really lucky in Thunder Bay where we have um, some concerns that are, you know, very strong, like forest fires in the in the outer parts of, of the city and, you know, infrastructure capacity to deal with folks seeking refuge in Thunder Bay when their communities are experiencing climate events. But we don't have, you know, as much of a concern about something like rising lake levels. Right just based on how development has taken place in Thunder Bay, you know, there's some cities in Southern Ontario where that is a major concern. They have extremely flood vulnerable areas. And since we've, you know, got this head start on some of this, we have a little bit better of an outlook when it comes to vulnerability. And so that's an easy way to track that through all of that adaptation monitoring. Mitigation is a much harder story because even if Thunder Bay were to emit zero emissions tomorrow, we're still going to be impacted by everything going on in the world because it doesn't matter, you know, if one person does it, it matters if every community takes action. And so it's a lot harder uh, to make those comparisons when we talk about climate mitigation. So we have to rely on, you know, 
our, our regular greenhouse gas emissions inventories. We have to look at uh, benchmarking with other cities about how much we use in different sectors and areas to make those kind of comparisons. So what gives you hope? When you're looking at Thunder Bay and you're looking forward through this time of challenging weather, challenging changes, like basic systems are, are going to have to shift. We don't know exactly how. What gives you hope in Thunder Bay? So I think, you know, there's a lot of good news in the sense that the net zero strategy was unanimously endorsed by council. And that's a, that's a big win. If we look to, you know, one of the more recent announcements with the approval of our zoning bylaw, which is, you know, pretty phenomenal and pretty transformative when we look at how our zoning bylaw looks to increase density in our neighborhoods and effectively removes kind of that single family zoning idea. There's a lot of positive change and a lot of positive momentum and, and people are starting to look at how our city can can be a leader in some of these areas and that and that gives me hope i love that we could be a leader (laughs) we have the potential to be a leader like that's great yeah and you know it's it is really really hard in this job and you know probably hard that we're talking on a friday and it's been uh you know a a rough week if you think about um you know some of our our recent announcements like the ipcc working group three report you know we have 36 months to wind down emissions um we're heading you know we're the likelihood we meet a 1.5 degree um celsius warming and stay there is is disappearing as we speak it's 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 really really hard because This job is having to look that in the eye all of the time and then, you know, having to operate in systems that aren't moving as fast as you want them to and having to adjust and and work on this this changing of perspectives. And it's it's a lot of really hard work Mm -hmm. and hard work is hard. (laughs) And that's, I think, something that we forget is that, you know, when we're asking people to change it, it takes a lot more work than asking people to stay the same and to, to maintain the status quo. Yeah, it's, it's a lot easier to say no, or I don't think, does this really apply to me? And, and we assure ourselves then to say, oh, okay, so what does that mean I should do? And take the proactive step, both in what we choose to talk about and what we ask after as well. But I get a lot of hope um, just... Um, I was listening to a podcast of one of the scientists who's really working hard to move North America to more electrification. That's his focus. He's like, if we could just get onto renewable sources of electricity and then electrification of our energy systems, that will get us a long way fast. So he's originally from Australia. And he said that in Australia, uh, there has not been leadership that embraces climate change and that has been leading the way in setting new policies and financing transformation of systems. And yet there has been a cease change and an enormous uptake of people installing solar and wind power, drawing on it, communities turning away from fossil fuels and becoming electrified in in, uh, transport as well as manufacturing and home energy production to an incredible extent. And a lot of it was neighborhoods coming up with suggestions, business owners deciding to make a choice, people sharing information kind of below the radar and, and nobody really noticing how it all added up until uh, somebody did and went well how did you do that and the answer was not simple 
so part of what gives me hope is sometimes when you get the big picture and you're looking for clear leadership and clear class forward, you're not getting what you're looking for and it, it's hard. But if you look down at the ground level and you say, what are people planting in their gardens? What are they choosing to eat? How are they choosing to spend their vacation time? What are they talking about and valuing when they make spending decisions? There has been a sea change and maybe that that helps more than we give it credit for because it's harder to see happen. It's so private and small and scattered all over the place. I'm trying to give you hope because you look like you had a heck of a Friday. Yeah, well, and that's and that's the thing is that it's, I think we underestimate the power that we have. I think that, you know, we're, we're busy. We're so busy. We're just struggling to, to exist and to get by and, you know, between work and all of these different activities that, that we are committed to and we have to do. And I think it's, it's so easy to become complacent in a way that says, you know, well, it's, it's the oil companies that are causing the problem. It's them. It's not me. Mm. Oh, it's the scientists. They aren't doing a good enough job. It's them. It's not me. Oh, it's other people. And, and I think it's, it's a, it's a coping mechanism mm-hmm. and, and it makes total sense. You know, you look at this horrible, gigantic problem and that's, that's a completely natural reaction, but it's, it's not true. You know, throughout, throughout human history, we've done amazing, incredible things. If we were talking to people 200 years ago about the fact that we're recording a podcast separate from one, like any of this is incredible that this is taking place and this is happening. We have the coolest technology. We have innovative people. We've got brilliant minds. We've got engaged youth. We have all of the pieces. It's about coming together now. And I think it's time, you know, and it's that'll benefit way more than just the climate. But it's about that human connection. And how do we bring that connection back? And give everybody their sense of of autonomy. Like, yeah, we need you. We really value you. We honor what you bring to this. You know, I I have this vision. I was was listening to something and, and they were talking about how many people just kind of get cut out of, uh, of the effective economy, right? They, they lose their chance for education. They lose their uh, right to shelter. They lose their right to the health care they need. And we invest a lot of our resources as a community in, in setting up barricades and making sure that people don't get things fruitlessly or, or you know, it's not prioritized properly, blah, blah, blah. I was getting so frustrated. I had this vision as a farmer of my harvest. So I spend the whole year planning and then growing and then not everything works out, right? It's never perfect. There's always things I learn every single year. Year, but I do have a harvest. And when I look at that harvest and I, and I think of somebody going up to it and just trying to pick out the three best things that are worth their money and they, and they don't care what happens to the rest, they're happy for it to get thrown out. Uh, they don't even think about it. Breaks my heart. Uh, how do I problem solve my harvest? So every single thing that I manage to get to fruition is used in some way. Some might be jams that might be fed to my chickens. Some might be, you know, prize things I serve at a, at a fancy meal. And I think of us as people right? How can we as a community tap into every single busy bee of a soul that's in this community so that we, we all can contribute to what we're all want to see happen. We can all agree is a good idea. What power that would be in that? Like how efficient and wonderful would that be? Cause I also keep honeybees. So, you know, the, the bigger the, the community, the healthier the hive, right? The, the easier it is to stress it cause it's going to survive. Anyway. 
Well, and that's, and that's inherently hopeful because it's not just about coming together to address climate change or coming together to distribute a harvest. It's about changing the way we organize our society and our systems. And climate action has the potential to benefit so many people. That's what I always try to keep in mind. It's not just about reducing emissions. It's about improving the lives of everyone. And there are going to be people who, you know, quote unquote, lose out in the sense where they're not able to own a 50,000 square foot house and 17 cars. <laughs> yeah, sorry. However, when we think about, you know, the people who rely on public transit, where we have accessible public transit that is zero emissions, so you're no longer breathing in toxic fumes, you are no longer listening to the loud noises, you're, dry, you're on a clean, quiet bus. How do we improve that? How do we make that even better? How do we improve our transit so more people want to ride these amazing, clean, quiet buses? And how do we make that equitable? How do we reduce the cost so that everybody wants to ride the electric bus? Like there's so much potential. And I think that, you know, climate change is a social justice issue. We know that at its core. Well, it is, it is, it is because I think of my harvest, but I also think that, um, um, that those that have undue privilege can see equality as oppression. But the vast majority of us see equality as a relief because we're very stressed by the risks of inequality to those we love and see around us and include in our community. So, you know, what is civil justice? It's not having to fret so much about your niece or your uncle or your grandmother who's 97 and is running out of money. It's really a very human need. I hope I want everybody to be okay. So then I can relax. Yeah. And, you know, when we when we think about the impacts of climate change, who is going to be impacted the most? It's going to be the vulnerable. It's going to be people who, you know, are living in houses that are leaky, that don't have insulation in the basement, people who are living in precarious housing, people who don't have access to reliable transportation. That's, that's the first, you know, those are the first people that are going to be harmed by the climate crisis. We see that if, you know, you zoom out. There's only one planet. So you start with everybody most vulnerable getting, getting really hurt. And sadly, if you are secure enough and you feel yourself wealthy enough, you kind of feel like that's so far from you removed. You can't do anything about them anyways. I don't know how they get by without millions. So why would I worry about how they can get through this one? The thing is, you can't buy your way out of this. Every single one of us is on the same planet. So the better we manage it, the better we will all come out the other end. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... Well, all of us are less secure than we'd like to think ourselves as being. All of us. But the, the more you know your insecurity, the more you know that this one is, is not a friendly change. Potentially it could be, though, if we, if we pay attention to that. It's an opportunity. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's easy to, to look back at all the times we had a wonderful opportunity and did not take it. You know, I'm thinking about Build Back Better. What happened to Build Back Better? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know what happened. And, you know, the thing is, is the opportunity never goes away. It's always there. We always have the opportunity. 
we can always do better. We can always do better. And it's about recognizing that and it all comes back to connection. I, I, I'm a Brene Brown stan, if you will, where her work has had a dramatic influence on my life. You know, I was never meant, I, I don't think I was meant to be a climate. I am a climate activist, you know, in my role, unfortunately, it, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But, you know, I stumbled here accidentally. I, I always thought that my mission was always to save the turtles. That was always my mission from a really young age. My niece loves turtles. And somehow I got here. And, you know, in a roundabout way, I'm saving the turtles because they live (laughs) on this planet too. But Brene Brown's work on on vulnerability and on connection and and the power of, of connection to restore a lot of the systems and a lot of the things that we look around and see are broken it it's really changed how how i do this work because it is really easy to become jaded it's really easy to take on you know that coping mechanism of other people where it's you're not doing enough and internalize that and here i'm not doing enough i'm not doing enough mm-hmm. and the more we connect with one another like this the more we join an earth care working group and connect and chat and although it may not be perfect that is reminding us that you know we're not alone we're together in this we matter we matter all of us matter and we have so much power and i think that that's that's always what i come back to is the more we're able to connect the better you know our action is going to be the more excited we're going to be to act and the less scary it's going to look well that's a great way to end a conversation summer you made my friday (laughs) good well (laughs) oh yeah it's 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 been uh it's definitely been a week but i'm i'm always glad to to chat with people who are thinking about this issue and thinking about how to bring more people together to to talk about this and that and that's really important so thank you for um, you know, putting this together and and coming up with this idea and doing all of this work because it is super important, I think. Aw, thanks, Summer. Thank you. Something different this way comes something, something, something different this way comes something, something, something different this way comes something, something, something different, something different, something different this way comes. Summer Stevenson is the sustainability coordinator for the city of Thunder Bay, and we spoke a few weeks ago. The Australian scientist I referenced there is Saul Griffith. I'll include links to some of the projects he's spearheading at our website, www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca, which I hope you visit often. I also have to note that Australia does still get less than a quarter of its energy from renewables. It still burns a lot of coal to power most of its grid. But, and yet, many municipalities have moved to 100% renewable energy power, making them energy independent and more sustainable. Just in the last few months during the pandemic, these include Tanzania, Adelaide, Cambina, and the city of Sydney. The tipping point, apparently, if I'm looking at, you know, news articles and stuff I can find online, was the affordability 
Once people saw how much cheaper core expenses get with electrification, they pushed for more. And jobs. A lot of miners in Australia, kind of like northwestern Ontario. And when they started building up this capacity for solar and wind, the jobs that that provided were a great transfer for those miners. They, they could carry over a lot of the same skills and have a job that was cleaner, that kept them closer to home, closer to their families. Um, so that also made them push for, let's do more of this. Totally makes sense to me. Communities chose to go electric. They built their own renewable energy capacity. And then another election happened just this past week or two in Australia, a federal election, and there was this huge shift of political paradigm. The new federal leaders, I got to note, they align a lot closer with this greener future that's now been experienced firsthand in so many cities across Australia. So it really makes me think of Brendan Grant and um, the conversation we had with him in episode three, the Food Futures edition. He said... You know, sometimes it's better to get the ball rolling locally and then to wait around for there to be permission or funding or support from other levels of government because politicians are actually at heart more followers than leaders. They're looking to us, they're electorate in many ways, for signs, for evidence of what is needed and welcome and proof of what is doable is powerful stuff. <laughs> While I'm referencing my references in that conversation, let me get the quote I paraphrased right for you and credit it. It's by Leonard Franklin, who first said, When you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. The solutions to the climate crisis often bridge divisions. They often lessen personal responsibilities and expenses by sharing them more equitably. For example, let me just give you an example of what I'm trying to describe here. So right now, we each buy what products we need to do things, from spades to snowblowers to washing machines. And in our current economy, companies tend to profit by how many things they succeed in selling us, which means, of course, the expendable economy. Replacing Trump's repairing. Durability might be valued by the buyer, but is a loss to the seller, so there's a conflict there. Energy efficiency, similarly, cost to the buyer, but only really a selling point to the seller, another conflict. So this economy we know is not sustainable. What does a sustainable economy do differently? The proposal is the idea of, of a circular economy. And the key to understanding what makes an economy circular is not just what is done is recycled and reused, but that things are built to be durable and repaired. And they're valued by how efficient they are, how little energy they take to use, and what a good fit the service they offer is to the need for service. Because if you boil down to it, the things we own that are tools, we don't need to own them. We need them to do what they do, right? So in a sustainable circular economy, you might not probably buy a spade. You might have access to a spade for those few days in which you actually use a spade. Or maybe you hire someone to dig or, or, or something like that. You might not have a snowblower. 
but you might have more options when it comes to a snow clearing service. Or maybe it would be something that was covered by municipal taxes. I don't know, right? Another great example would be instead of having a washing machine, um, there would be a company who provided laundry service. In order for it to be profitable, then you have to do a great job, offer great service, and minimize your need to replace the tools that allow you to do the job you're doing. Minimize the cost of the energy required to do the job that you're doing. So that's putting the weight on a whole different foot, right? It's, it's shifting things. And it makes a lot of things more affordable, right? We're not wasting as much. Efficiency makes it more affordable to all of us. And the other thing I love about that idea is uh, instead of going in and making a purchase and decide, you know, having this transitory relationship with a salesperson, um, you are choosing a service where you're going to have a relationship with somebody, right? Somebody who's taking care of something that you need to do on a regular basis. More connections, I think, makes for stronger community. It's a change that the manufacturers of cheap garden tools that might not last a single season probably won't welcome, but everyday people living on a personal and a carbon emission budget should welcome. It all has a lot to do with the systems that we're a part of, the structures that shape our choices. Like, you know, from public transit to price. What we can do in our neighborhood or have to commute to. How extreme weather impacts us or doesn't because our infrastructure is up to it or not. The front line of, of many of these key systems and structures that we interact with and are shaped by day to day are municipal. Something different this way comes, something different this way comes, something different this way comes, something different this way comes. Last week, Ben talked about how he thinks we should have some sort of a place where people can get things repaired. He's, he frets about how many things get thrown out that not everybody could fix, but somebody could, and instead they get replaced. So we found out there is a repair cafe that is, that is getting organized here in Thunder Bay, looking for volunteers who can fix some things, would be willing to learn how to fix other things, to at least give it a stab to help people repair and maintain instead of replacing. Everything from, you know... Hemming your pants, I've got a sewing machine, to rewiring your lamp. He's super excited. And if you want to find out more, uh, check it out. I've, we found it on Facebook, the Repair Pet Cafe. They haven't picked their first date. They're just getting organized, but it's going to start soon. And we will be there with bells on, and we'd love to see you there. I'd like to thank Summer Stevenson sustainability coordinator for the city of Thunder Bay for her conversation on this the greening city edition of something different this way comes I'm Heather McLeod find more about the people initiatives and resources referenced here on the website www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca Next week, we're going to get some perspective in the Times Change edition with quilter and material artist extraordinaire Muriel Squires. Thank you for listening. Please help this podcast find its listeners. Recommend it. Review it. 
You can even donate to help cover the cost of producing it. I so welcome your support. I'd also like to thank Leah McKay, my partner in podcast promotion and distribution, as well as the graphic designer behind the webpage and look. Something different, this way comes something. Something different, something different. Something different, this way comes something. Something different, something different.